I think it's really critical that you understand that everybody wants to grow their business and we all go through different phases, right? Just like human beings go through phases. You know, you, you give birth to your business and you're an infant and an infant is a run for survival and cash flow problems are a natural process in most cases and you're running. Hopefully you get to a teenager where now cash flow is not a problem, you're growing like crazy and then you have a new problem, you don't have systems in place. And maybe you get to young adult where you have to decide what you're not going to do. Eventually, hopefully you get to prime where you're growing your business revenues and you're growing your profits and you've got a professional organization and you're not doing it. Because as long as you're doing it, really you don't have a business. What you have is you're self-employed. There's nothing wrong with being self-employed. But there, whenever you meet someone who's in business is stressed, they're always a business operator. And my focus is to become a business owner. How do you do that? You realize that the chokehold on the growth of your business is always the leader. And it's your skills and it's your psychology. And I found it's 80% psychology and 20% skills. You gotta have the marketing skills. You gotta be able to lead. You gotta be able to recruit. You gotta do all those things. But really, most importantly, you gotta get it through what I call the threshold of control. And this, to me, is the secret to really succeeding in business. And it's pretty simplistic. Uh, how many of you uh, snowboard or ski? Anybody out there snowboard or ski? To give you a sense? So if you're, most people are terminally intermediate when they get into that sport, right? <laughs> You know, they, they, they really never get that good. They're not really a belonger. They're kind of in the middle and they never get much better. And I think the reason is they never push themselves beyond what they can handle, right? Uh, you're, you're used to greens or blues and you find yourself on a double black and what happens? Everything inside you freaks out because you're past what I call the threshold of control, your comfort zone. And you look down and you go, I could die doing this. So now you have two choices. Either most people slam themselves on the ground, hang on for dear life and try not to skid off the cliff and at best what you do is survive or a few people let go of their fear no matter how scary it is and goes i gotta go down this thing and there's no other choice and they focus on where they want to go instead of what they're afraid of and they find a way to carve and once you carve a few of them that double black is your bitch right you don't have to worry about that anymore right and so that's what happens in business. So for me, I can remember going and starting my first business in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. I got on a radio show and this person it was a shock shock radio show and I didn't know it. And they started attacking me and saying, I'm a liar and a charlatan. You can't do these things. And this therapist called me up and said, you know what? I've dealt with people forever. You can't wipe out a phobia in less than an hour. It can take seven years. I have a patient right now I've worked with for seven years and I've been able to solve this. And I said, great. Bring that patient tonight. I'm doing a free guest event at the Holiday Inn and I'll take care of that. It should take me 10 or 15 minutes. <laughs> and, uh, and did you so do it? I did it. And I was able to do it. I wrapped a snake around this woman. She had a snake phobia. Phobia is an uncontrollable response. So because of that, I had people coming to these guest events like crazy and I thought I hit the home run, right? And I did this big guest event. There was like a thousand people there, which for me would be like, I don't know, a hundred thousand people in an event right now. And um, after I was done, a bunch of people signed up for my seminar because I did a free value add event and then I would invite them to come spend three days with me. And this man walks up to me and he's from immigration. He goes, a great seminar. He goes, uh, I'd like to see your work permit. And I said, what's a work permit? <laughs> right? You know, when you're in the beginning of the business, you don't know these things, right? He goes, well, to work in this country, you need a work permit. And he said, I'll tell you what, I got to see you tomorrow at 5.30. I was, well, my seminar starts at 7. He goes, you'll, you'll be fine. Just, you got to be there at 5.30. He said, I'm not asking. It's a requirement. So I show up at 5.30, I wait for half an hour, now I'm starting to stress, and finally I sit down with a guy and he says, you're taking away Canadian jobs. I said, how many Canadian firewalkers are there? Come on, that's what I was doing those days. <laughs> and he said, no, you teach NLP skills and linguistic programming and these people have classes of 20 people and you got a class of 500. And so they say you're taking jobs, so your event is over. 
what do you mean you're eventually? He goes, if you walk on that stage tonight, we will handcuff you and deport you. This is what I call a threshold of control. Right? He says, you're going to have to give the money back. I said, I can't give the money back. I spent all the money to put on the seminar. I wasn't a good businessman. I just wanted to help everybody, right? So I spent all the money to do it. And he goes, you have no money. Well, then you're going to have to deal with that. So I walked out of the building. I have 40 minutes. People are going to arrive. I can't go on stage. What do you do? I told my three staff members, two of which were volunteers, what happened. They're like, <gasps> and I said, here's what we're doing. I'm doing this seminar. And he said, you're going to go to jail. I said, I'm not going to jail. I said, how close is the border? <laughs> True story. And they said, well, there's a place called Bellingham, Washington. It's about an hour and 40 minutes. I said, rent me six buses and I'll meet the people out front before they go in the hotel. This is not a problem. I met everybody up front. They said, this is a traveling seminar. It's a surprise, right? <laughs> <laughs> we're going to Bellingham. We're going to America. <laughs> and it was a three-day seminar. We had to go and come back each day and night for three days in a row. I got all but four people to agree to do it. And, and then I got to Billingham, Washington at the Holiday Inn there, and it was, there was like a bar mitzvah, a wedding or some stuff next door, and it was so loud you couldn't hear anybody. And so I said, just lie on the floor, close your eyes, gonna hypnotize you into this shit, right? You know? But, so what happened was you learn how to get through that, right? And we learn how to be resourceful. When you realize that your problem is not a lack of resources, it's not a lack of money or technology or contacts, it's not, it's your psychology because the ultimate resource is resourcefulness. And human emotion, that's what starts wars, that's what makes a business begin, that's how you have children, that's how we end wars, it's all emotion. And so what I really learned to do is how to manage my emotions. So, you know, once you solve that one, the next one shows up. I had somebody, I started a franchise, and a couple franchisees were really upset with one of the people representing on my side, said they didn't make things clear to them, and you know, it's all bullshit, but it cost me $5 million in four years. I thought, the first one was like a $50,000 challenge. Now I got a $5 million challenge. And I took all the money I'd saved in my entire career to pay that off and I was starting over again. And then I grew from that. And then I finally got, you know, to, I had a partner in business, and long story short, they had a business that was losing a million dollars a day and he turned around and making 1.8 billion in EBITDA. He offered me his partner and I signed a document saying we're all joint and several. There's 40 million in debt. I figured I had 10 million of the debt. I have a million, eight, 1.8 billion in infrastructure. And it turned out my partners, uh, two of them were broke. They weren't billionaires, they had lost their money. And the other one was the son of a billionaire and his dad had given him nothing at $5 million to his name. So I was on the hook shortly after for $120 million when I didn't have $120 million. I figured how to deal with that. By doing that, I eventually took my companies to this year will surpass $6 billion in 33 companies because I made it through the threshold of control. So I want you to know, when you see these big numbers by any entrepreneur, they all started with blocking and tackling and they all started with how do I get both the skill and more importantly, the psychology. You can get the skill if you can get that part of you that just doesn't die. The part of you that finds the way to add more value than anybody else so you can keep growing. Where does the perseverance come from for you? Where does the indomitable spirit come from? Here, the title of your book, unshakable where does the, the, the does the drive come from you did not grow up in easy circumstances no. at all no college no. at all no. all self-educated self-educated a household that was not easy true is that part of the reason that you are as perseverant as you are as 
optimistic as you are, as well, forceful sure, as that you are. Didn't create my optimism. No, it didn't that's create your sure. optimism. <laughs> but 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 maybe it was a way to compete. To, to I think it, it developed moxie. My my mother was a really good woman. I didn't talk about it when she was alive, and I frankly, even if she passed, I didn't talk about it until one day I was sitting in front of a group of 30 kids that are all were abused by their parents, and um, and I told them that you know your biography is not your destiny and. You're not defined by what happened, but I could see in their eyes a big, tall, white, rich guy, you know, he doesn't understand. And so I told them the whole story. My mom beating me against the wall till my head bled, pouring liquid soap down my throat till I threw up. So I think in order to protect my younger brother and sister, I had to become a practical psychologist. That drove me and I developed moxie to be able to deal with stuff. So that was the gift. If my mom had been the mother that I wanted to be, I wouldn't be the man I'm proud to be, I think. So that was the gift in it. But I think the, the drive part is falling in love with your customers. I, I love people, I've always loved people. And I hate suffering because I've suffered. And I love to light people up, and not just light them up, pump them up. I love to have them have a skill, have them a tool, have a system. You know, when I do my boot camps each year for um, our business mastery programs, I guarantee everybody there on the day one, you'll have a million dollars of value in your opinion, or we'll give you, keep all the stuff you got and we'll give you your money back. No one ever leaves because I know how to add that value in the business for those people. So I think the drive is the biggest mistake I think businesses make is many businesses are start by people that you built the product you love. And that may still be true for you. Like you built this great jewelry or you built this great software or you or whatever skill set you have. But the problem is the world changes so fast now. I mean, I'm old enough. Who remembers the Sony Walkman? Anybody ancient enough to watch it? That, that product lasted 20 years. Now a product like that won't even last a year, right? The competition is too high. So today, if you and I are gonna really succeed, you gotta fall in love with your ideal customer. Because look, I'm sure you know that right now the economy we have is looking pretty good, but it's gonna correct because we've done nothing since 2008 except print more money. And we didn't even print money, we put you know ones and zeros in computers. So there's gonna be some corrections, and when those happens, it's gonna shake people up. You need to fall in love with a client who's going to do well with you even when the economy goes to hell. Think about it, Starbucks, I was sitting across from Howard Schultz and had a great conversation and said, what is he most proud of? And he said, he used to say starting Starbucks. Then he said, now it's surviving 2008. If they closed, I think it was 1,300 stores, if I remember correctly, for $2 coffee. So you need to get your ass ready for winter because it's coming. And if you have got challenges now, but if you do, if you do well in winter, you'll dominate for the rest of the time. And the way you do well in winter is you fall in love with your ideal clients and then you come up with the irresistible offer for them. You know, Steve Jobs created 99 cent songs, but he didn't create that shit, we all know that. Where'd it come from? Who's old enough to remember Columbia House? Where you got like 10 albums for a buck, remember that? Or for a quarter and stuff. They built a billion dollar company. Tom Shoes, shitty product, I love him. Great, great what he does, but, but two for one, being able to do something where I get it and I benefit somebody else, brilliant idea. Built the whole company on that. He didn't build on the product, he built it on the mission, right? So you need an irresistible offer for the client who is ideal for you and you want to fall in love with a client. Don't fall in love with your product or service because those need to change. And if you fall in love with your product or service, somebody's going to beat you. They're going to be anticipating. I always tell businesses, there's two businesses you have to run, manage, right now. You have to run the business you're in because if you don't run that, your cash flow, your challenges are going to bite you. But you also have to run the business you're becoming. And both businesses you have to make progress on. If you get all excited about the future and all the cool stuff that's coming, and you go work on that, and there's no cash flow now, you're dead in the water. If you just work on today, you're gonna wake up and go, what the hell happened, my competition beat me. It's those two sides, and, and my 33 companies, I look at what the company is now and what it has to be constantly. So we're, we're doing the, the, you know, the, the grunt work, if you will, the important day-to-day -day work, while we're anticipating the future.
when you were building your businesses, and you've gone through an evolution, as all business yes, owners do. I mean, what you were doing 30 years ago isn't really what you're doing today. How and when did you know that you were doing in life what you were meant to do? Because I think that's part of the quest of the entrepreneur, is, to, is to achieve that. When did you know it? How did you know it? When did I know? I, I think I've known, you, I think you know it at different stages, at different levels, at different times. You know, it's like, uh, I can remember one that stands out for me, yes, that pops in my head is uh, President Clinton calling me. I was with Peter Guber, my, my partner in the esports business, and we both own the LAFC, new, new MLS franchise, soccer franchise, building stadium here. I was at his home in Aspen, and he says, the president's on the line for you. And it was President Clinton. And I picked the phone, and, and I talked to the president for a few minutes, and he told me what's going on. And I said, Mr. President, I'm completely honored you want me to come visit with you, and I'd love to, but I want you to know I'm not a fan. I said, uh, you know, it was the time in which he said the economy's stupid, and then he turned around and did all these things that weren't related to the economy. And he looked like a very weak president at that point. And I remember Peter looking at me going, you just told the President of the United States you're not a fan. <laughs> He's calling you, telling you, inviting you to come out to Camp David. But it was great. I said, I just, I want to be sincere. I'd be, love to serve you, but I'm not, I'm not a sycophant, right? Yeah. And so I went there and spent time with him. And I think the moment I know that I was doing what I love was, well, there were a couple of people there and they were all trying to get his attention. And he and I went for this walk, you know, and this deer went by and he was telling me, you know, about all these past presidents. And he was honestly at the time complaining about how unfair things were. And I thought, this is the President of the United States and he's effed up. <laughs> And I'm 31 years old, and I gotta help this bastard, you know? <laughs> and, and then that night he wanted me to stay, and it was New Year's, and I left Aspen with my family and Peter, and I promised my family I'd come back, and I said, no, I promised my family, Mr. President, I said, I'd be happy to work with you in the future, and I left. Leaving the president when everybody else stayed uh, was a moment I realized I'm doing what I'm really supposed to do. I've kept my party straight, my family's still number one, making contribution is number two. I'm able to play on the scale that's global and I'm able to play on the scale that matters most, which is local and family. I think that would be a moment that sticks out for me. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but since you brought up the subject of presidents, I have to ask you about the current president. Have you advised him? And if you haven't, how would you help him? <laughs> Brain transplant? No, just kidding. <laughs> Look, I, I know the president quite well. I've known him for many years. I gave him his first big speech. I, I might, might be to blame. He wrote about in his book. He thought he was coming to speak to 200 people in my seminar with 10,000 people, and he just kind of lost it a little bit. Um, and then his number one piece of feedback on how to succeed was get a prenup. And I thought, oh my God. <laughs> um, uh, and I know Mrs. Clinton. I know Mrs. Clinton very well as well. So. Um, I had a great difficulty in this last election because I felt like both parties lied. And I think that's extremely hard. I mean, everybody knows white lies, but some were pretty exaggerated and obvious on both sides. And so I found it was a more difficult time. Um, I help people on both sides of the aisle. I don't talk about it who I help unless they talk about it publicly. Uh, President Clinton shared, you know, he called me one day and said, uh, you know, I got this overhead speaker, the president's calling him, it was in my offices, and, you know, big offices and two floors. I went to pick up this phone, and sure enough, it's the secretary, and the president's waiting, and says, Tony, they're going to impeach me in the morning. What should I do? I was like, could you call me sooner? <laughs> it's tomorrow morning. Hey, what the hell are you going to do, right? So, you know, I, he said, what should I do? And I said, the answer is not what should I do. You're asking the wrong question. First question I ask is, what do you want? Do you want parents, moms, dads to have their kids look up to you, or do you want to just stay in office? 
I mean, it's a different outcome. I said, if you want to stay in office, I said, easy for me. I'm not a lawyer and I'm not in your position, but let's be honest, you're never going to get thrown out of office. There's too many votes on your side. So I said, you're going to stay in office if you do nothing. But I said, if you really want to be respected, I said, you can share the truth. You're a lawyer without putting yourself at risk and still get more of the truth out. And we had this great conversation. He said, man, that's exactly right. That's exactly what I do. So I'll call you back. I'll call you back in 20 minutes. So I'm waiting 20, 30, 45. About an hour later, secretary calls me and says, President wants you to know he's still resolving things. He wants to get back to you. And then another 30 minutes went by. And I'm thinking, I, I'm, I'm affecting history here, right? And then I saw him standing with all the Democrats beside him just saying, nope, we're going to kind of keep the yep. same component yep. and went through things. So over the years, I've had a chance to work with people on all sides. And what I think about the current president is he's a terrible communicator, but I think he actually has some good ideas. And I also think he's communicated so poorly and our world is so divided that now anything he says is seen through that filter. If I think you are the nicest man in the world, it totally controls my experience of you. It has nothing to do with you. It's my belief. If you treat me mean one day and we're best friends, I'll probably go, you're having a bad day, right? If I can't resolve it with you. Mm -hmm. And who's ever had a bad day where you hope somebody else thought that about you or you were just having a bad day, right, you know? Yeah. So, but if I think you're a manipulating bastard, and I'm wrong, but I believe it, and you don't treat me mean, you treat me real nice, what's the first question in our mind? What does he want? want? So your questions, your belief, your emotion, your experience has nothing to do with life. It's shaped by what you believe. And most of you believe what you believe, not by interacting with these people personally. You're doing it through the media. And the media is a great component, but everything is sound bites. And let's be honest, it's no longer about informing you. It's about startling you. Informing you will never get your attention. There's too much. We got oceans, you know, people say that we're living in an information society. That's total bullshit. The information society died a long time ago, right? We're drowning in information. We're starving for wisdom. And what we get now are sound bites. And now people don't, you know, it's not news anymore. On both sides of the table, people basically pretend it's news when it's all commentary. And so your perception, it's like I just had lunch recently with George W. Bush. I brought him out to speak to a, a group of my funding groups. And I, I bring up people on both sides of the aisle. And this year we're working with President Obama to see if we can get him in. But to give you an idea, most people there thought, they're more liberal and they're like thinking like this guy's evil and after two hours of conversation there wasn't a person that you like still thought that right they, they not only liked him but like asked like him about his decisions and they got to see why he made the decisions he did and when you see the why instead of all the bullshit you hear and the generalizations that he's an evil guy you start to go wow i might have made a different decision. i might not have with that information that he had at that time and i asked him about the current president and it was still during the election when this was occurring and i I said, obviously, I know you wanted your brother to win, and I admired President Bush for never attacking the past president. He never attacked President Obama. It was a, he was a class act, even when he disagreed. So he told me privately what he felt, and then he said, uh, Tony, I remember when Nixon was elected, and he said, I thought that was the end of the American presidency. I mean, the president of the United States is gone. I mean, he's, he's, he's evil. He did the wrong thing. And he said he didn't destroy it. He didn't. And he said, so here's what I figured out. The office is bigger than the occupant. And I really believe that's true. I think if you want to go home tonight with a little bit of comfort inside, go back to that truth. The office is bigger than the occupant. And you see it when he does things and then there's a judicial branch that balances it. And, and I think we're in a situation where the biggest challenge we have as a society is we demonize the other side on almost every issue. Right. It used to be that, you know, congressmen and senators would go fight like crazy on the floor and then they go have a beer together. Now you're radioactive if you talk to somebody. And that's huge. I, I, I met Mr. Gorbachev. I got a chance to fly him for four and a half hours and I asked him what ended the Cold War and he said the end of demonization. 
He said, it used to be you guys were attacking us and everything you did was evil. We were the evil empire and we knew you were evil. And he said, one day, he said, I was sitting there with President Reagan and he was lecturing me. And he said, I could feel the anger. He said, I could feel my face burning red. I was so mad. And I said to him, you are not my teacher and I am not your student. You will not lecture me. And he said, then I lectured him on the evils of capitalism. <laughs> and then we're going back and forth. And he said, so that's when in the Cold War. And I said, you know, that's a really great answer, but I'm with you for four hours. And I want to know the moment. What's the moment? I'm a student of history. What's the, what changed the world? Because most of us forget. That's probably, take away terrorism. Terrorism is nothing compared to the level of nuclear assault that the USSR and, and the US had at that stage. Biggest change we've had. And he thought for a moment, thought for a moment, and he shared this great moment with me. He said, he hit his leg. He's talking to an interpreter, but he recognizes, understands a lot of English. He's smacking his leg and giggling like a little kid. He goes, I will tell you the moment. He said, we were having this fight back and forth, back and forth. I was lecturing him, he's lecturing me. And all of a sudden he just stood up like this and he said, this is not working. And he turned and walked three steps away and then he turned back and said, can we start fresh? <laughs> my name is Ron, are you Mikhail? <laughs> and it had that same impact that it did on you just now. He said, he was laughing uncontrollably. He goes, I knew I could do business with this man. You had to love the man. And then he said, Reagan also knew that Gorbachev loves children. And you know, there are no children gonna go to the USSR, right? Soviet Union. And Reagan brought a group of children over and let them be in the care of Gorbachev. And he said, it completely changed the game for him. So yeah. it was That's a moment, just a moment of breaking somebody's pattern. And that works in an intimate relationship, it works in a business challenge, but it also works yeah. on the scale of society and history. I want to go to audience questions, and I hope you all have sent some to the iconic tour hashtag. I'll go to those in just a sec. But, but from politics back to, to entrepreneurialism and entrepreneurship, you've built businesses, you've faced business challenges, you have talked to people like the people in this room, entrepreneurs. What do they ask you most and what do you tell them? Time. Time seems to be the largest issue. How many of you have time issues in running your business, have to have a life and your time? Can I see a show of hands out there who feels like that's there? So you can see it's about 90% of the room, yeah. right? And some people are just too tired to raise their hand. Or <laughs> so, um, and, but the issue of time is not the real issue. The real issue is that they're operating as an operator, not an owner. Yeah. And so what I start to do in the beginning, you have to do both, right? But what I start to do is show them how you have to be able to break off and get other people to do things. But more importantly, I teach people, I do a, you know, a five-day boot camp, you know, I call Business Mastery a couple times a year. And we bring in businesses from all over the world, literally. And we have people just starting a business and we have people with, you know, businesses that are doing a billion, two billion, three. And what you find is that there's a common pattern amongst all these group of people where they, they find themselves, if, if it's a small business, they do everything because they figure like they're the only one can do it or they tried someone else and they failed. Well, that happens in every business. You have to begin to leverage yourself or you're just going to be self-employed and you'll never have the scalability. A business is a system that adds value even when you're not there. And you as a leader have to get good enough to both hire people and train people so that you're not a manager. A manager works with people to make sure they get the job done while you're there. But if you have to be there, there's, could I run 33 companies? I mean, every four days I'm on a plane, train, helicopter on stage somewhere on average in a year, and I got 33 companies. There's 12 I manage directly, but I couldn't do that by management. I do it by leadership. I build leaders who can make their own decisions. I hire people that are the best of the best. Now in the beginning, that's hard because you have no money, right? So you hire the best, it's called you, and you pay them nothing, right? <laughs>
And then now you try to hire other people and what do you do? You hire your friends, which you know is a disaster because they're not as skilled and you love them and it's hard to manage them. And then I hired people that were really talented, but they were mean, you know, they didn't share my values. And so eventually you get to that place where you can find the right people. But I think the most important secret for the growth of any business, the question I guess on how to get over the time and the answer is you got to take two hours, 90 minutes a week with your team of one, two, three, 2000 and you got to meet where you work on the business. And I teach people a format called 7-7, where there's seven areas of a business that you cannot miss. Marketing, sales, optimization, the financials, culture. And I'll make sure that each week you and your team focus on that. Not the day-to-day -day business, but how do we strengthen our marketing, not just for this run, but overall how we build the brand. What do we do to change our sales process? How do we optimize the business? How do we spend no money and grow the business 30% in the next three to six months? And when you take small markers in the business that are critical and you improve them 5, 10, 15%, but you do 12 of them, you'll grow your business 120, 130%, 140% because there's a compounding impact. You don't just get the improvement you've made. So I try to help businesses to make those changes so that so you have time to think and be strategic. Because if you're just running, how many of you are stressed? I'll be honest, I'll be honest if you would. Today, being here and not being at your business, how many feel some stress in your business being away even for a day? Okay, right now, I'm a business operator, F that, right? I'm gonna become a business owner, you gotta be. Yeah. Let's go to a question from the audience. Uh, what would the 30-year-old version of yourself say to you today with conviction and be flat wrong about? <laughs> Let's see. What would the 30-year-old Tony Robbins say to you today well, first of all, he's dead, so he's not going to say shit today. <laughs> I buried him a long time ago because I'm 57. Um, I would say, um, I would say the 30-year-old would say, this is what we're going to do this year, and it would be these huge numbers, and I developed a principle around the time I was 30, which is most of us overestimate what we're going to do in a year, and we underestimate what we're going to do in a decade. And a decade happens that fast. You'll blink your eyes and a decade point. will be here. That and is so a great point. I really, truly, I, everything I do is long term. I think it's yeah. the biggest challenge we have in, in yeah. you know, corporate America is everybody's looking for the next quarter. Instead of, you know, the best business people, the Mark Benioffs, the Steve Wins, the you know, Peter Gubers, and the people that I hang with, they all are decade long people. When I was 14, I said, this is how my life's going to, I decided, I said, in my 20s, I'm going to help. I want to have the skill to help anyone change their life. If I'm committed and they're committed, it's going to be done. I'll have the ability. So I got to build to that, which I did. And then I said, in my 30s, at 14, I said, I'll do that with groups of people instead of one-on-one. -on -one. And then in my 40s, I'll do it with big groups. In my 50s, I'll do it with companies. In my 60s, I'll either do it in government as a servant there or in a religious context, because I'm a spiritual person, but I don't tell people what to believe religiously. But at that point, I've lived long enough, maybe I will. Would you ever run for office? Uh, would I, you before, ever? I would have said yes. Now the answer is no. I, I've served on both sides of the aisle. and. It's not really about the office, it's about fundraising right now, so much of the time. I would not do that, unless I ran with my own money and you know, maybe a small number of friends, but at this stage, I think it would disrupt my wife's life so much. Yeah. Uh, I'm a very public person and she's not, and I feel bad for her, so I, I don't think that would be the right direction. Let's go to Jeff yeah. Conlon's question. If mindset is the key or a key, how do you shift your mindset? I was gonna ask a question that's related to that, and that is, uh, you're now, I don't know well, you say you're top of the world, but you're a confident guy. What do you do? What do you do when you have self-doubt? And that's sort of how do you think, shift your mindset? I think how do you deal with self-doubt? I, I don't have a lot of it at this stage, but, but I... <laughs> Shocking! 
I'm being honest, right? <laughs> I think self-doubt is, you know, instead of self-doubt, I would say questioning. I think it's critical to question, but at certain stages. If you're questioning all the time, you have nothing but fear and doubt, right? You only believe something because you don't question it, right? Someone tells me, oh, so-and-so, talk behind your back, this, and you go, no, they're my friend, they'd never do that. Your belief, you're certain they're not going to do it, so you don't even entertain it. But if two or three people tell you that, and they go, wow, could John really be doing this behind my back? And, and you start questioning it. Have you ever done that? You've been upset with somebody, you confront them, and then you find out it's all bullshit, they didn't do anything wrong, and you feel like an idiot? So, so for me, I think there's a time to question. And so I organize that. When I'm beginning something, I do that. And my investments is a perfect example. You know, uh, if you look at somebody, you know, uh, you know, like Richard Branson, for example, Richard is this giant risk taker, right? But he questions, he's got one question. He questions within himself and everyone else. How are we gonna protect the downside? It's his number one question. You never believe it. The guy risks his life. When it comes to investments in business, he doesn't risk anything. When he was, he told me when he was building Virgin, he's taking on British Airlines. And it's a giant outlier capital. I mean, this could literally bankrupt him and everybody said it would. So he said, okay, how to protect the downside. And he negotiated with Boeing for a year and a half and convinced them that if he went out of business, if he was wrong and lost his business in the first two years, he could give back all the jets and have no liability whatsoever. So his whole focus is asymmetrical risk reward. How do I take the least risk with the most upside? If I was gonna say anything to entrepreneurs in this room, the illusion that you've been taught is that great entrepreneurs take giant risks, it's total bullshit. There are some exceptions that have, and they've gotten lucky. But if you look at the ones that consistently succeed, they know the upside will take care of itself. They focus on how to protect the downside, and they take risk where they know I'm taking a limited risk for an unlimited upside. So if I'm wrong, I'm still okay. You know, I work with uh, Paul Tudor Jones, one of the top 10 traders in the history of the world. And Paul, I've worked with him, I've coached him now for 24 years. He hasn't lost money in those 24 years on his own personal trading. And during that time, I've learned so much from him. And the biggest thing I learned from him was this asymmetrical risk reward that when he risks a dollar, he wants to be certain he's gonna make five where he doesn't risk the dollar. See, most people risk a dollar to make 10% or 20%. You won't do that. If you do that, you're gonna go broke. Because here's what happens. You risk a dollar to try to make five and you're wrong. Risk another dollar and if you win, you still win big. You can be wrong four out of five times and still break even. That's how the best in the world do it. They don't do it by taking these gigantic risks where everything's on the line. If it doesn't go perfectly, you're out of business. That's why most businesses go out. You want to think of asymmetrical risk reward. Tudor Jones, curiously, as an aside, was a classmate of mine at the University of Virginia. Wow, that's and I awesome. Met, I met him there. He the would world. never remember me, but, uh, but a fascinating guy. The, uh, another aside, because you mentioned uh, he's a hedge fund manager in, in Connecticut. You did a brilliant interview with Ray Dalio for, I believe it was Facebook, yes, not long ago. Yeah. And his book is really terrific, called Principles. It's, it's, I recommend you all go get it. It's very, very good. It's one of the greatest business books I've ever read because if you don't know who Ray is, uh, most of you know Warren Buffett. Um, that's because Warren Buffett is sweet in shares and is public nature. But Ray is actually the most successful investor of his type in the history of the world. He's returned more money to investors from a hedge fund perspective than anybody in history. When I met Ray uh, 10 years ago, you had to have a $5 billion net worth for him to talk to you. You couldn't be a billionaire, that's too weak. And you had to give him $100 million to start. Now he won't take your money no matter who you are. When I went to go interview him the first time, the Prime Minister of China was talking to him on the phone, he was coaching China on what to do with their money. That's how brilliant he is. Yeah. Hedge fund people, if you're familiar with rich people, give their money hedge funds. A big one might be, let's say, $20 billion. He's $160 billion. But go get his book. I, he flew down to Palm Beach to my good. home, and it's called Principles. He said, I want you to be the first person to interview me and do it on, on Facebook Live, so I did. 
but I love this man and he will show you how he built from nothing. He literally started with nothing. He worked as a caddy. Um, he started when he was 26 years old in a two bedroom apartment and now he's got 1,800 employees and 160 billion. Uh, and he's one of the 100 richest men in the world and one of the top 10 in the, that you'll meet. But his insights about how to run a business, how to run your life, we all need principles to guide our decision-making. If you really think about it, success is the result of good judgment, right? If you make great decisions, you're gonna succeed. But where does good judgment come from? You know, good judgment often, often comes from experience and experience often comes from bad judgment, right? So what I found is the way to speed it up, the way to have less of that bad judgment is I gotta think about that for a minute. That's good. That's True, though, right? Good, yeah. So yeah, 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 I found yeah, yeah. The, the way to speed it up is not learn through my own experience, but learn by modeling others. Compress decades into days. So if you can get in a race, had now Ray's been a very private man for the last very, decade very. and a half. But he's he's 68 years old. He's a good friend, and he's entering this stage where he now wants to go public for a short time, give everybody a nose, and then disappear because he feels an obligation to give back to the society and human beings that have helped him to succeed. Yeah. So he, go pick it up, it'll be fantastic. It, 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 we had him at another event and he talks about this idea of, of, of radical transparency and yes. how he runs his business. It's a very different, I'm not sure it would work for every business, but it's a, it certainly worked for him. Let's go to uh, uh, Satori's question. With so many people wanting your help, what are the factors for you to select who you privately train or mentor? This is a you're a busy guy. You've got a time management thing. I'm sure a lot of people would like a piece of Tony Robbins' mind. Yes. How do you decide who, whom you're going to help? Well, first of all, I try to, to do things online. You know, like I, there's a zillion things on YouTube, so no one has to spend any money. Anybody who wants to be inspired to do that. The only thing I don't like about that is it's random. Mm -hmm. I'm a system guy. Like, I know how to take you from here to there. So I have products that can do that for people. And then I have events, and the events have gotten bigger and bigger. Now we do 10, 14,000 people in a weekend. Um, and so anybody can go. Who I coach are people that I know by touching them I can touch millions more. So when I work with a Mark Benioff at Salesforce, you know, in the early days, Mark sat in the front row, came to three of my same seminars in a row, and was like, are you, are you new? Are you a little slow? I was teasing him, you know? And he, Mark's as big as I am. He stands up, and I'm looking at this guy eye to eye, and he goes, you know, my name is Mark Benioff, and because of you, you finally pushed me over the edge. I'm gonna start my own business. I'm leaving Oracle. I'm gonna start this company called Salesforce.com. And he said, uh, and you mark my words, we're going to change business around the world. We're going to do $100 million in business. Well, this year he's going to do $10 billion, right? So he's grown a little bit. But when you're around people like that, you get to see what the distinctions are that separate people. You get to see what, what makes them stand out. And by coaching him, I'm able to affect everybody, not only all of him and his employees, because he's that kind of owner, right? He's a leader. But also, he's a leader in the social, you know, social community. He's very conscious about that. And everybody from Facebook to Apple to GE, their back end is Salesforce. So impacting him impacts many other people. And then I just pick people who I feel the need is. I mean, somebody stops me on the street, you know, my wife will tell you, I can't not help. You know, I got to help someone. Now, I may have limited time, so then I'll invite him to a seminar or send him a book or a package or something so I can give them a guide to go to the next level. So I don't ever say no, but I can't coach everybody one-on-one, -on -one, so I try to do it in groups. Where there was possible. a wonderful anecdote I read, since you brought up Mark Benioff, uh, that I guess he was a guest at one of your, at your home or resort in Fiji, and in the middle of the night, you get, he and all of the other guests, this goes to the question of how do you overcome your fears? Tell that story about Benioff jumping into the river, river and what you didn't tell him about the river. <laughs> Well, uh, I, I have a home in Fiji. I've been going there since I was 23, 24 years old. It's one of my favorite places in the world. And the people there are extraordinary. You're carried as a child 
every day for six months by someone 24 7 so we talk about raising them you know being raised by a village it's true there and they they sing in four-part harmony when they're four years old so when i went there i was touched by it and i went and explored this island and i was, was with this chief and I, they have this river that goes both ways because it's this river where the ocean comes in and it looks like out of africa or something you'd see down in south america and eventually goes in this scary looking area into a giant lake but the the tide is so fast it would just take you and then you know, eight hours later, it reverses and goes back out. So I was with them this one day, and I said, are there any, you know, fish in there? And, and the, the Ratu, which is the main chief point, said, what about that? And we looked back, and it's a giant manta ray slowly going under the bridge. So I said, F it. I'm doing this. And I just jumped in. And then the thing took me. And it took me for a wild-ass ride. For about 20 minutes, I ended up this lake. And then, dumbass me, I didn't think about how the hell am I going to get back. It was so strong I couldn't swim against it, so I spent eight hours on this little island there before I come back. So then I came back one time with a friend, it was nighttime, and I was like, you know, they were talking about Devil Rock and Shark Alley and all this shit, and I was like, let's do it at night. But I had a boat waiting for us <laughs> in the lake to bring <laughs> us back. Once. But we yeah. jumped in, and it was scary as hell, and all the, you know, all the phosphorescence going on looks like pixie dust. It's, it's a wild experience, flying fish to scare the shit out of you, they come by. And so when, when uh, Mark came, he flew over and come spend a week with me there, I took him and woke him up and you have to do when the tide is. It was like two in the morning. I woke them all up and said, I got surprised for you. I'm like, what? I said, just trust me. Dragged them all on, put, you know, wet gear on them, you know, gave them life, life preservers and then threw them off and Mark was freaking out. And I grabbed his hand and I thought, we'll go on three. One. And we went on one. Because <laughs> I can feel him and he's as big as I am. If I try to jump, he might be hanging me out there just holding on. <laughs> so Mark talks about that story a lot, but overcoming fear. Because, you know, whatever you're afraid of, it's never as much as you're afraid of, right? You know, it's how many things you've been afraid of that never happen, right? And then the things you do are afraid of, if they do happen, you just deal with them. It's that old phrase, you know, coward dies a thousand deaths, a courageous man only once. I discipline myself, not perfectly, but for the most part, I don't worry about shit until it happens. You know, I, I anticipate it, but I don't worry about it. If state is everything, I assume that means state of mind, how do you stay in a great state of mind 24-7? Should that even be your goal? I think it's worthwhile to have as a goal. I don't think it's realistic 24-7, whatever, having any blurbs because we all have a two million year old brain. Everybody in this room has that, I do too. And it's not designed to make you happy. It's designed to make you survive. So if I said to all of you right now, like what does that brain look for? It looks for what can hurt you and it exaggerates it. And since there's no saber tooth tiger now, it says, what are people thinking of me? Will my business make it? Do I have enough money? And these are all easy things to solve, but our reactions in our gut, when we let the fear part of our mind take over, that basically if the survival software, if it runs you, you're in trouble. So a few years ago, I, I actually lecture on this now. I say, you know, you need two skills to have the quality of life you want. If you want extraordinary life, life on your terms, whatever your terms are, you need to master the skill of the science of achievement. You got to figure out how do I take what I dream about and make it real. And it's a science. And you can model other people and you can learn, you can speed up. I've spent my lifetime doing that. But the second skill, and the one that most people don't give enough value to culturally, is more important. And that is you need to alter if you want an extraordinary life. How many people do you know that have achieved it? How many have done this? Who's achieved a goal that was a big goal? You worked your ass off and you achieved it. And then your brain went, is this all there is? Who's had one of these moments? Yeah, almost everybody. And that's worse than failing, because we're all achievers in this riot room, right? So if you fail, what are you going to do? You get back up, you try another approach, you're going to eventually succeed. You know it in your gut if you're really driven. But if you succeed and you're miserable, now you're what I call technically screwed, right? I mean, because if you're not happy with what you got, I mean, failing, you get up and do something new, but succeeding, where do you go? So I really believe, you look at somebody like, um, 
uh, like somebody like, say, Robin Williams. I think the loss of him is one of the greatest losses we had. He's loved worldwide. I asked people all over the world last year in China, I asked them in Japan and Sydney, Australia, throughout the US. How many, I'll ask you, how many of you loved, don't raise your hand if you liked him, how many of you loved Robin Williams? I'm curious. Keep your hands up, look around the room. Like 98%, only 2% assholes that didn't like Robin Williams. <laughs> But when I said this, I didn't say like, I said loved. And so here's a guy, was he an overachiever? He came to Hollywood, everybody comes to Hollywood. He said, I'm on my own show. Oh yeah, sure you are, buddy. How was old enough to remember the show? What was it called? Mork and Mindy. Mork and Mindy, to old people in this room, clearly, right? <laughs> he does Mork and Mindy, but he also makes it the number one show. Then he says, I'm gonna have a beautiful family, he does that. Then he says, I'm gonna make more money than I could spend, he does that. Then he says, I wanna make movies, he does that. Then he says, I wanna win an Academy Award for not being funny, his number one skill. And he did it. And then he hung himself in his own home, leaving his wife and children to find his lifeless body. How do you explain that? I'll tell you the answer. He made everybody happy but home. And his wife said he had bluey bodies and upsets in his brain. That's all true, but he used drugs and alcohol his entire life. He suffered his entire life, made everybody happy but himself. And so I love the guy. I, I, my, one of my birthdays, I was at TED, and did this talk which was very popular and he came up to my birthday party a bunch of guys took me out to dinner that night and jumped on top of the table and sang happy birthday as a russian woman and then as a chinese man and, <laughs> and you know i've never lost a, a suicide knock on wood out of thousands we've made films and follow-up but i had no idea that's where he was but i look at a man like that and i say he's a warning as much as we all loved him even more so because we loved him i know none of you're going to kill yourself i'm not worried about that but a lot of people live a long time, but they don't really live, you know, because they let, the, they let their stress and their frustration, you know, I always say achievers don't get fearful. We're all achievers, right? We don't get fearful, we just get stressed, right? Stress is the achiever word for fear. So when I say to you, what are you stressed about? Well, I gotta do this, I gotta make this thing happen. What if you don't? Well, I got to. Well, what if you, oh, it'll fall apart. What if it falls apart? Then it'll fail. What if it fails? Then I'm a failure. What if you're a failure? And now if, if I follow the trail of your stress, it'll take me to your deepest fear. And the only way to have your life work is to face that fear and push through it. What is courage? Courage does not mean you're not afraid. It means you're afraid and you do it anyway. You're scared shitless, but you do it anyway. And I think if you're going to succeed at the highest level, you've got to face those fears. Leads right to the next question. Uh, based on your experience, what are the top three characteristics to have in order to be successful? For these type of people, what does success look like? What does it feel like? What are the characteristics that can get you there? What success looks like and feels like is different for everyone because we all define success in a different way. So I, I, I let, leave that to them. But what does it take to succeed? That I can tell you because I could be an idiot at this point. But when you've been with, you know, 50 million people, 4 million in live seminars for days and nights and days and nights, I know that whatever we do, it's a result of our patterns. It's not us. There are certain patterns that will make you angry, they'll make you frustrated, they'll make you pissed off. And there's certain patterns of thinking and feeling and using your body that'll make you playful and fun and grateful and excited and passionate. And if you think it's you, because you've done a pattern so long, it's hard to change yourself, but it's easy to change a pattern. Where do the patterns come from? We learn them through our conditioning. When you're first born, you can do anything in your life. You can, you know, scream, yell, go to the bathroom in your pants, try that when you're 30, see if it works, right? You know? <laughs> but you learn very quickly as time goes by, your love for nothing as a baby, right? Your love, no matter what you do, because your mother's, you know, got oxytocin. She's drug, natural drug in her body. Men get it too, but women get 10 times as much. That's why a healthy woman cannot leave her child. A healthy man can, but a woman can't. Right? She's biochemically healthy. And so 
you look at this and you say, you know, what are the three things needed? I can tell you what they are. The number one, I love intelligence. I love wickedly intelligent people. I try to hire as many of them as possible, learn from them. But what's more valuable than intelligence is hunger. Do you find, have you looked at what's the common denominator between Richard Branson, Mark Benioff, you know, you, give me your list of whoever it is. I guarantee if you dig underneath, their hunger has never gone away. Some people get hungry because they got a goal to, you know, achieve something or get in a swimsuit by a certain date or some stuff. But that's not, a, that's not an identity change, right? These are people that are like myself. I'm hungry today at 57 more than I was at 26. You know, I can, I, I'm feeling me. And when I say hungry, I'm hungry to contribute, to learn, to grow, to make a difference. I, I'll never settle less than I can be or do or share or give or create. And everyone I know that's successful, that's the driving force. Because with that hunger, you can get the skill. With that hunger, you can figure it out. With that, there are a lot of very smart people who can't fight their way out of a paper bag in a pragmatic way. And they got, you know, great, great transcripts and shit like that. I went to Harvard one time and I spoke, and right before I spoke, they had voted at Harvard Business School to not release anyone's transcripts to the recruiters of the businesses coming in to block it. And the argument was, your education is more than just your grades. And I went berserk. I got up there, first of all, they said, you know, Tony, they first, you know, I expect to be, you know, a thousand people there, a couple thousand people there. And they said, no, no, Bill Gates was here. We had 300 people. It's going to be much smaller. But we ended up with about 1,200 people, standing room only. And they gave me 30 minutes. And of course, I went three hours. <laughs> I did. No one left. And But one of the first things I did, I said, what is this bullshit I'm reading? This was in the paper that day. I said, listen, I'm not trying to be disrespectful, but you've been disrespectful to each other. I said, you know, if you're not willing to show your transcripts, I, I agree with you. Your career, who you are is more than just your, your degree here. But you chose Harvard for a reason. And there are people here that have worked around the clock and gotten, you know, 4.0, and you got yourself a 2.6, and you're going to block them because there's more of you than the 4.0. It's not going to work that way when you get in business. When you get in business, you guys who are doing this right now, you're going to be judged on one thing, results. And your grades are the results in this context. And if you think your grades are not it, then convince me as the interviewer that the grades are a part of it, but there's so much more you've done. If you can't do that, you're never going to make it. I said, you guys, anybody voted for that? Just count on a future that is full of pain. And the room was like, you know, it was, it was pretty intense, I guess. I thought it was pretty soft, personally. <laughs> and then all of a sudden people stood up and they did a standing ovation and people said, this is bullshit because... This is what happens sometimes in a democracy. Sometimes in a democracy, the lowest level standard is what becomes natural. We're seeing it right now on the political side. We're seeing people there, you know, in Berkeley, the home of free speech, people throwing things, burning things, destroying things, who are supposed to be liberals who should be open for open speech. And then you see conservatives that are just as dumb saying things that inflaming people. It's, it's not one side or the other, it's us as a society. We gotta shift it. We gotta go from demonization to saying, let's say it's a fight over guns. Very emotional fight. What's the problem? We demonize each side. Nobody in this room, whether you're pro-gun or against gun, whether you want gun regulation or not, there's nobody in this room that doesn't want their children or their friends or their family safe and protected. We just disagree, people disagree on how. And if we can start with what we agree on, we can actually make progress. But today, there's no progress because we now also augment this with social media and we augment it with the regular media. And think about it. The media is not here to inform you. They're here to startle you. We all know if we say something inflaming, you're going to talk about it, share it on social media, and they get a multiplied effect. It's all about advertising. So you have to really discern yourself today. You have to understand it's the Wild West, not only on the internet, but on television as well. And you have to decide if you're an independent thinker, 
what is really right and maybe be part of the solution instead of another person that attacks the right or the left, Donald Trump or whoever it is that you'd be attacking. There's lots of people that are easy to attack, but attacking doesn't change or improve anything. So in we, my opinion. We, we gave you 45 minutes. Would anybody here mind if we went a little longer? Would you mind if we went a little longer? Sure. So let five me, or six more hours? Yeah, five or six more hours. <laughs> we'll bring the bar inside is what we'll do. Uh, so, so but these, I, I want to finish what I said just for one second. Yeah, please, I, please I, do. I want to answer this person's question, yeah. which was three things. Oh, so three. We got, we got through one, hunger. Yeah, okay, let's get fast. through three. <laughs> hunger is the number one. I think the number two is having a mission larger than yourself. Because it's kind of like having a child, right? You know. Having a child is a very exciting thing, and then you have a child and you go, what did I do <laughs> sometimes, right? Uh, same thing with a business, right? You know, you've got to really be able to have something you're doing it for that's more than you, because in the early days of the business, it doesn't really make you any money, and you work your tail off, so you need pride of ownership, you need joy, you need a mission. And I really believe until you find something that you care about more than yourself, you'll never discover what you're capable of. Because we'll all do more for others that we love or respect than we'll ever do for ourselves. That's part of the beauty of being a human. Most of us do more for our kids, for example, than other people. And then I think the third thing is, you, you got mission and hunger, is you really have to become obsessed with strategies. Because strategies can save you so much time. The wrong strategy, and you know, I'll give you a stupid metaphor. If you said your number one goal is to see a sunset, and then you start running east as fast as you can, I don't give a shit how positive you are. I don't care how hard you work. I don't care how long you've been putting into it. You got the wrong strategy. But the right strategy in business and in life can save you a decade. And someone else may have spent, again, a decade figuring it out through trial and error. And then they figured it out. You might be able to learn it in six weeks or six months or six days or six hours. So I think that would be my third element. So let me ask you a, a, a question that may be a little off point, but, but I hope helpful. A lot of people in this room and a lot of people in the world want to follow their passion okay but they've also got to put food on the table and pay the rent and pay the the bills how do you do both at the same time how do you build follow have your mission have your passion and do that when you know the world is a tough place hard to make a living hard to pay the bills places expensive how do you do that how do you thread that needle well, it depends on who you're dealing with, right? If the person is entrepreneurial and they ask me this question, I always tell them, you know, you've got to take care of your kids, you've got to pay the bills. And I said, but, you know, tell me when you work. And they tell me, well, you know, I work, you know, nine to five or eight to five and I'm exhausted and everything else. I said, well, what are you doing with the other eight hours? Um, because that's what I did. I worked as a janitor all night long, middle of the night, everything else. I could compress time there because it was based on results, not time. So if I could do a great job in shorter time, I had that time. But then, you know, what I start doing between, you know, seven o'clock at night and two in the morning, which is pretty much the time I worked, that's when I was developing myself, getting the skills, learning, educating, starting the business. So I, I think people just have to realize it's a gut-wrenching process. It's not, an entrepreneurship is not for everybody. Most people fail in entrepreneurship. The vast majority fail. You know, 96% of 10 years, but what happens after 10 years? All clear sailing after that? Anybody remember Lehman Brothers? You know, yeah, they ran a century, yeah. they had gross revenues over a century of more than a trillion with a T dollars. That's what went through their bank accounts over that century, and they're gone. So I don't think it's right for everybody. I think you have to really be clear, uh, is your personality the right personality if you're going to begin in this area? And then if you're going to work for somebody else, you can still become financially free, but that means you got to stop being a consumer and become an owner 
of our under our entrepreneurs. You want to own businesses, right? Get out of just being, you know, don't just own an iPhone, own the company. But not just Apple, obviously. But How do you keep your energy up and your enthusiasm up? I, you know, how do you do it? I'm wired for it. You know, it's, it's my nature to some extent, but also the other part is I get to see results. I mean, who here has ever been touched by my work before? I'm curious. Anybody in this room? So I look around the room, and I just, you know, how's it hard to be inspired when I'm in a room and a third or 40 percent or 50 percent have used my work? And so people come up to me every day, dozens of people a day, if I'm traveling, and they tell me the most amazing stories. Outside my children and my wife, that's probably the greatest gift of my life. I never get tired of hearing it, and it just makes me want to deliver more, give more, have more impact. You get the last word. Tell them what you want them to know. Well, if you're entrepreneurs out there, I, here's what I'd say to you. I'd say, don't be so damn hard on yourself. I know that sounds counter to being an achiever, but when you're beating yourself up, you're sucking out the energy you need to move forward. It's kind of like, um, I always tell people, there's so much energy. And I've built mine, I do a lot of things to build my energy to be incredibly strong and have really strong endurance because to me, energy is life. If you don't have strong energy, you're not gonna do anything. But even after we look at that energy, it only goes so many places. So if your energy is being caught up, if you take energy in a business and you pour it into external marketing, going out and reaching people and adding value, that business is gonna grow. But if there are inner conflicts in that business between people, then the energy is being sucked in here and less energy is going out there, the business is gonna have problems. That's also true of you. If you allow your disappointments to create these inner conflicts and fears and you let them run wild within you, they're going to suck the energy out you need to go to the next level in your business. You have to discipline your disappointment now. You know, mine is the 90 second rule. So watch this. Try something real fast. Look around this room. I'm going to give you a test. Look around this room and see everything that's brown. I'm going to test you in a moment. Look behind you, look around you, look at clothing, look at people, look anything that's brown. Brown, 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 brown. Record it in your mind. Close your eyes. Now, with your eyes closed, tell me everything you saw just now that was red. If you see more brown than red, say I. Open your eyes, look for red now. Really look for red. Look for it anywhere you can find it. Look around you, look beside you, look in front, back. How many found more red this time? Raise your hand if you did, say I. Why'd you find more red this time? Because you told me to. Seek and you shall find. But here's what's amazing. Seek and you shall find even if it's not there. I'll prove it to you. How many saw beige shit called it brown just to feel successful? <laughs> How many saw burgundy? called it red just to so count more pieces so if you think you're a jerk or someone else is a jerk you're gonna color it you're gonna change it you're gonna find the jerkiness in them you're gonna find the jerk in you it's really important that you manage your mental and emotional state because you are the business if you are the leader your responsibility your job your opportunity your privilege is to be able to truly lead and you cannot lead if you're living in fear you cannot lead in a place of constant uncertainty we all have uncertainty at times but if you watch an athlete go out to shoot a free throw or a kicker in, in the NFL to go kick the ball, how many have ever seen that person, they're about to kick it, they're about to shoot it, and you go, they're gonna miss it, and you know they're gonna miss it. Who's experienced this before? How did you know? You could see in their body that they're missing the core ingredient, absolute certainty. You can have the great skills in the world, but when you lose that certainty, the athlete goes down. That's usually when I get the call. I gotta rewire them and get them back where they can execute at that level. So be kind to yourself, as corny as that sounds, not to be kind to yourself, but so there's more energy available to solve the problems and to build the business and to meet your mission. Because the time you're beating yourself up, you're trying to prove to yourself you really care, but meanwhile, what you're doing is sucking the energy out of your growth. I had somebody who embezzled some money when I was a tiny company, like when a company was $3 million. And the guy embezzled a quarter of a million dollars, and I was $758,000 in debt and thought I was in profit. 
And in those days, you know, everybody told me I have to go bankrupt. And I remember I was just like so angry. There's so much anger because my business was like my child. This guy tried to kill my child, you know? So I was chasing him into Mexico so I could beat the hell out of him and put him in prison. And, and, um, and then I realized in the middle of the stuff, I got to let go of this because while I'm busy being angry and pissed off, the business is going to go under. I'm chasing birds. What am I do when I get to the bird? I got to focus on how to add the value. And so take your energy. That's all you have in this life and invest it in the things you love. In those you love, in the mission of your business, and in your clients. If you fall in love with what you do, who you do it with, and who you do it for, there'll be no limit to your impact. But you gotta be willing to do it for decades, because it's all bullshit. Maybe you'll hit the lucky thing and it'll happen in 12 months. But even if you don't, even if you did, you know, uh, I got a friend who's one of my partners in the LAFC and so forth, you know, Chad, who started YouTube, for example, and $1.6 billion in what, 18 months, 24 months, that type of thing. It's not always the best thing because ultimately in life, whenever you meet people who have succeeded, almost always we talk about the toughest times and laugh and remember because in order to have a foreground, you need a background and to appreciate the foreground, you need a background. So I found that the most difficult times have been the best times because they've made me appreciate what my life is like today. And uh, I hope you'll just take care of yourself.